0: Hi, I'm Glenn Scrivener. I work for Speak Life, uh, a charity in Eastbourne that exists to share the good news of Jesus around the place. And uh, I live together with my wife, Emma, and our daughter, Ruby, in Eastbourne. And it's my great privilege to be with you today and to share on this topic. And what I want to do with this topic, Jesus' teaching on adultery and lust is to go to 30,000 feet to begin with and give you the grand picture of the Bible the grand picture of the Bible is that the Bible is a romance um, did you know that the Bible is actually a romance from the very first sentence in the Bible we are introduced to the grand romance Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now heavens in Hebrew is masculine and earth is feminine And uh, that works in all the Romance languages, by the way. Whatever Romance language you can think of, whatever language that actually has uh, genders for the nouns, think of the word for heaven, it will be masculine. Think of the word for earth, Uh, not for world, but the word for earth is almost always, and if you can contradict me, I'd love to hear it, but I, I think in all my experience of the Romance languages, it's always feminine. So heaven, masculine, earth, feminine. And you're meant to look at heaven and earth and think to yourself, those two should get together. There should be some kind of coming together, some grand union, some consummation. And lo and behold, by the end of the first page of the Bible, you have Adam and Eve, these icons of heaven and earth who are told to come together and to be fruitful and to multiply. And then you keep reading in the Old Testament and and again and again, God's people are told that they must be faithful to the Lord and not unfaithful. Do you notice that language, faithful and unfaithful? It's it's not about being particularly obedient or disobedient, although that's involved, but it's much deeper than that. You're not just meant to be obedient to the Lord, you're meant to be faithful to the Lord. And when God's people run off after other gods, they are not just called idolaters, they are called adulterers. And you think to yourself, adultery? Are we meant to be married to God? Apparently we are. Apparently, We are meant to be married to God. Apparently he is the great bridegroom. And then of course you come into the New Testament and here comes Jesus and he calls himself a number of times the bridegroom. The bridegroom. And you think to yourself, oh gosh. Here comes the God of Israel to love his people and to give himself for his people. You keep on reading in the Bible and you you get to the the epistles, you get to the letters of the Apostle Paul. And he's constantly talking about Christ is the great bridegroom and the church is the great bride. You keep on reading right to the end of the Bible. What do you get in the book of Revelation? Heaven marries earth. It's amazing. You can read right to the end of the Bible and you see heaven comes down to marry earth. There is the consummation of everything that was promised back in Genesis chapter 1, and the whole Bible ends with a wedding, which is great. It means that the Bible is a romance. It also means that the Bible is a comedy, by the way. Uh, You might know that uh, comedies traditionally speaking, finish with weddings. That's how you know that a Shakespeare comedy is actually a comedy. It's not because you've been laughing so hard throughout the play. You haven't, have you? Be honest. Uh, Or certainly I I don't laugh very much at a Shakespearean comedy. In fact, I'm not quite aware that the play has been a comedy until I get to the ending. And in the ending, you always know what kind of play it is. If there's a funeral at the end, it's a tragedy. If there's a wedding at the end, it's a comedy. In all 14 of Shakespeare's comedies, there are weddings, perhaps one or two, or even four weddings. It's the classical happily ever after when the guy and the girl finally get together. And in the Bible, the guy and the girl is God and humanity, heaven and earth. It's a cosmic vision of a grand romance. That is the great grand narrative, the cosmic romance of the Bible, which means there is a connection between God and sex. In fact, there is a profound connection between God and sex. Sex in the Bible is not a small, tawdry thing that we need to keep a lid on. I know that's how the church has been characterized in its teaching about sex, that the church thinks of sex as a small, tawdry thing that is best kept behind locked doors and not really spoken of. But actually the Bible is unabashed about sex. The Bible puts God and sex together. The Bible says that there is a grand romance into which we are invited, and the Bible's vision for sex is a vision that is connected to the stars. That's quite grand, don't you think? Quite often people think that the the Christian view of sex is basically the, the sort of fiat panda view of sex. Uh, I'm here to tell you that the Christian view of sex is the Bugatti Veyron view of sex. Do you know the, the Bugatti Veyron? Uh, it is, at, at last I looked, it was uh, the world's most expensive street-legal car. I'm going to get emails from people afterwards who are going to tell me, oh, no, actually, there's a... There's a new supercar that's uh, even more expensive than the Bugatti Veyron. You're gonna, you're gonna give me those emails, that's fine. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, the last time I looked uh, online, the, the most expensive street-legal car was the Bugatti Veyron, 3.4 million uh, dollars. And, and here's the kind of car that can do 0-60 in 2.9 seconds, okay? This, this is a supercharged car, right? This is, this is a grand thing. This is an immense thing. This is a thing of weight, a thing of deep value. And therefore, if I owned a Bugatti Varon, you could not drive my car unless your name was Scrivener. And even then, I would have deep concern, right? I'm not gonna share that car with you. Not because it's such a cheap, tawdry thing, but because it is so vital, it is so grand, it is so expensive. And Christians have the Bugatti Varon view of sex. Whereas the car that I actually drive, Every car I have ever owned, I have either been the fourth, fifth, sixth or seventh owner of that car, uh, but I have always been the final owner of that car. Um, I've always driven it into into some kind of grave. It is my job to kind of travel around and and shoot my mouth off about Jesus, and and so uh, I I clock up a a lot of miles, and uh, the car doesn't fare too well. Therefore, if you ask me whether you can borrow my car, fine, I'll give you the keys. If you write it off, that's fine. You're probably doing me a favour at that stage. Um, But the Bible's view of sex is not like uh, a cheap, beat-up, second-hand, seventh-hand car vision of sex, okay? The world's vision of sex is that. The world's vision of sex is, as long as it's consensual, then fine, you can hop in, you can enjoy the car for a little bit. But the Christian vision of sex is the Bugatti-Veron vision of sex, the $3.4 million supercar vision of sex. We need to put those two things together, that God and sex actually belong together and that the Bible does not have a small view of sex but a very grand one. Uh, There's a quote by G.K. Chesterton, or rather it's been attributed to G.K. Chesterton. We're not quite sure uh, who originally said it. But the quote goes like this. Every man who's ever knocked on the door of a brothel is looking for God. It's quite a striking thing to say, isn't it? Every man who has ever knocked on the door of a brothel is looking for God. What's this quote saying? It's, It's saying that the desires you're tapping into... Even when you seek sex illegitimately, those desires find their truest expression and fulfillment in God. That even those who are trying to fulfill their sexual desires illegitimately, even that desire is linked to the hunger of the human heart, the kind of hunger that is only satisfied with God himself. Sex and God are linked, and when we turn from God, you know, the next most transcendent experience that people can have after an experience of God is an experience of somebody else sexually. And so, no wonder in a society that, that does not want God, no wonder we lift up sex, no wonder we, we go to sex to give us the intimacy that truly is found in God. But Jesus tells us that there is a right way for God's love and for God's love story to shape our sex lives. There is, there is a right way, not going off to the brothel, but there is a right way to view sex. And he summarizes it all in uh, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, just in three verses, tells you everything you need to know about the Christian view of sex. It's funny, sometimes uh, people say, ah, Jesus never said anything about sex, so let's not bother about that topic. Um, let's not get hung up on sexual ethics. Uh, I'm I'm not one to get hung up on sexual ethics. I I don't think ethics are at the heart of the Christian faith or sexual ethics, but I do believe in following Jesus. and, And he does say stuff about sex. So let's listen to what Jesus says about sex. And in three verses, he gives us the whole picture of what sex is about. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, there he's quoting from Genesis chapter 1. At the beginning, the Creator made the male and female and said, and now he quotes Genesis chapter 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, says Jesus, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's the whole of the Christian sexual ethic right there. We are male and female, brought together forever as one flesh. And just think about that word, one flesh. In the Bible, one flesh is a phrase that describes marriage and it describes sex. And really, those two things belong together in the closest intimacy. The one flesh experience of sex is to be enjoyed only in the one flesh union of marriage. That's what the Bible says. The one flesh experience of sex... Belongs in the one flesh union of marriage. And beyond that context for sex, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, don't even think about it. That's what we're about to see in Matthew chapter 5. Beyond the context that's given for sex in the Bible, marriage between a man and a woman for life, beyond that context, don't even think about sex. Because sex is holy fire. Think about that image of fire for a second. Um, You know, fire is wonderful and it's dangerous. It's powerful and it destroys. And there's one place in my house where you can actually light a fire. It's funny to think about, isn't it? That There's actually one place in my house that you can not only light the fire, you can stoke the flames, you can fuel the fire. And if it's in that right place, if it's in the fireplace, then that fire can actually serve and and bless the whole household. But if you take the fire out of the fireplace, if you light a fire anywhere else in the house, you will burn it down. And the Bible says sex is holy fire. And there is one place that is safe for it. There is one place that if you keep it within these confines, it can actually be such a blessing. It can bless the whole household. But if you take sex out of that context, you will burn the house down. You will burn your relationships down. You'll burn your family down. You'll burn your life down. Sex is holy fire. We think we can take sex out of the safe place and use it wherever. We can't. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, here we are in our passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants to address this issue of sex and marriage and adultery and lust, and he begins in verse 27 with the wisdom of Moses. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, back in Exodus chapter 20, back in the original Sermon on the Mount, back on Mount Sinai, back in the Ten Commandments, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. That is the sixth commandment of the ten that Moses revealed from his mountain. And Jesus begins here. He begins with Moses, not to set aside Moses, but to fulfill Moses, to go deeper than Moses, to press into the the full meaning of Moses. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. That is wise and good and true. Do not take the fire out of the fireplace. Don't take sex out of marriage, ever. Sex is taking the fire out of the fireplace, and you will burn down the house. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27, Solomon asks, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. You take the fire out of the fireplace, you burn down the house but people burn down the house every day. They do it out there in Brighton, and they do it here in church too. Let me give you some uh, adultery stats. Adultery statistics are very difficult because uh, um, if you're going to lie to your spouse, you're probably going to lie to the survey as well, but here's what happens with uh, adultery stats. Uh, 40% of married people will admit to physical or emotional adultery. 40% of married people will admit to physical or emotional adultery at some point in their married life. Most of the people who use Match.com, online relationship sort of finder website, most people who use Match.com are already married or in long-term relationships. They're using the site to cheat. But searching specifically for an affair is not the most common way that adultery happens. Uh, Among the most common ways for adultery to happen is old flames getting in touch, that message out of the blue from an old girlfriend, an old boyfriend on Facebook that makes your heart pound and you don't don't tell your spouse about it. That's a very common way for adultery to happen. But 60% of affairs begin at work. I use the term affair, I shouldn't use the word affair, really. uh, uh, Affair is such a euphemism. Uh, It's a catastrophic, home-wrecking, family-destroying adultery, but 60% of adultery begins in the workplace. Here's another stat. 35% of business travelers admit to committing adultery at some point. A third. A third of business travelers who spend long times on the road, they admit to committing adultery at some point. Here's one that blew me away this week as I was looking at it. Uh, 68% of women and, 70, uh, and 74% of men say that they would commit adultery if they knew for sure that their partner would not find out. About 70% of all people, whether male or female. 68% of women 74% of men say they would commit adultery if they knew for sure their partner would never find out. There are some huge danger points here um, And before we even get to the issue of lust and of virtual adultery, it would be really remiss of me if I didn't address the issue of actual adultery, actual adultery that might be happening right now, or you might be on the slippery slope towards it right now. Are you on match.com type websites or Tinder, just to see what all the fuss is about, right? Get off. Get off right now, right now. Delete. Are you getting in touch with your old flame or has your old flame, your old boyfriend or girlfriend, gotten in touch with you? And when they message you, your heart beats fast and you don't tell anyone else about it. Unfriend immediately. Detach. End it. Are you a business traveler and you've never really addressed the dangers that you're putting yourself in front of? as you go on the road have you ever talked to other christians who go on the road a lot and had a had a discussion about what you can do to be wise and not to put yourself in harm's way you know on on any one day i am never more than 20 minutes away from totally wrecking my life are are we reckoning on that? that on any one day we're only about 20 minutes away from totally ruining our family ruining our life we really are Can we get real about that? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You can't do it. You mustn't do it. Don't take the fire out of the fireplace. But notice the last stat that I mentioned, about 70% of people would have an affair if they knew that they'd get away with it. Think about that. There's something going on in the imagination of people. There's, There's the fantasy that we all buy into that someone out there would complete me. That someone out there could give me a spiritual connection that maybe I'm not getting at home. And so the fantasy exists that if I get out there, then I will find the connection. And that's that's where cheating begins. It begins with my desires. It begins with my fantasy. It begins with my imagination. And maybe you think, What I'm about to say is stick a lid on the fantasy. Stick a lid on the desires. Cram it down. Never go in there. Suppress your desire. Is is that what you think I'm saying? When I tell you not to hook up with your old flame, when I tell you not to do that, do you think Glenn's just being a killjoy? Do you think I just want people to suppress their desires? suppress their true selves and just keep a lid on things. Uh, No, I want you to, the Bible wants you to, Jesus wants you to pursue true joy and express real and life-giving passion in a genuine, authentic, and safe place. Jesus wants you to have the fires burning bright within the fireplace. Because the idea that that co-worker or that old flame or that mysterious stranger, the idea that these people that that we might meet or they're from our former lives, the idea that these people will thrill our hearts and give us a sense of connection, that's a lie. They will give you 20 minutes of endorphin rush and meanwhile you have set fire to your house. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But just refraining from the activity is not where the real battle lies. This this is why Jesus gets to the heart of it. He says, you've heard the sixth commandment. Let me give you the inner meaning of it. Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, adultery begins with a look. It begins with lust. It begins in the heart. And if you have lost the battle there, you have lost the war. When there's adultery, it is never an accident. People never just fall into bed with each other. It began with looking. It began with lusting. It began with fantasizing, imagining it with the eyes of the heart. It began with Facebook stalking. It began with just visiting that site just to see what all all the fuss is about. It began with nurturing your thought life. It began with fantasizing about that person when you are with your spouse. It began with flirting. It began with a lustful look. No one just falls into bed with someone else it begins in the heart it begins with the eyes and Jesus in verse 28 he's not just saying that lust is the road to adultery although it is lust is the road to physical adultery but Jesus is saying something much more profound he's saying that lust is adultery when you're lusting you're not in danger of crossing the line you're already over it you can burn down your house, you can ruin your life and your marriage without ever physically cheating. How is that possible? <laughs> Just look around at a pornified world that seems to be fueled by lust, where one in three men and one in, th- one in six women say that they not only use porn, they say it's out of control. One in three men, one in six women say they're They use porn, and it's out of control. Here's some more porn stats for you. A third of all internet traffic is pornography. A third. There is a lot of internet traffic. The top porn site gets 33.5 billion visits a year. That is more than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. On this top porn site, 1 million hours of videos are uploaded every year. Interesting fact the most popular day of the week for watching porn is Sunday That's because it's also the loneliest day If only there was something else that people could do on a Sunday something where people could find true Connection and an answer to their loneliness if, if only something on Sunday Could answer the desire for sex, you know, everyone knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God Here's another st- statistic For the past six years, the number one category of porn searched for, on this number one site, the number one category of porn searched for is teen. Teen. I find that so shocking and depressing. We all agree that pedophilia is wrong. It's it's like, it's like the one taboo that everyone can agree on. Pedophilia is wrong and everyone is searching for teenage pornography on the legal sites, and then there are the illegal sites, where you, you go under 18 years old. Such hypocrisy. The whole world says pedophilia is the worst thing in the world, the whole world is searching for teen porn. Here's what Jesus' teaching does. It, it, it unmasks hypocrisy, it gets to the heart. Speaking of children and porn, here's another statistic. The average age of exposure to porn is 11. Average age is 11. 88% of top-rated porn scenes contain physical aggression. 94% of aggressive acts were committed against women. You know, porn and violence just go together. Just. And bringing things closer to home, in, in the UK, Premier Christian Radio did a, a survey of Christians. 75% of Christian men admit to viewing pornography on a monthly or less regular basis. of Christian men say they have a porn addiction. It's actually higher than the one in three who admitted a problem with porn in the general population. 42% of Christian men say they have a porn addiction. 30% 30 of church leaders access pornography more than once a month. And Jesus says, verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart you are already setting fire to your house even if you're not physically jumping into bed with somebody but porn is anti-sex actually it's anti-sex i mean think of a think of a, a man is meant to go out from himself and to win a bride and he's meant to proactively serve an actual flesh and blood woman with real and costly service he and he alone is to uncover her nakedness. That's a phrase that means sex in the Old Testament. Look in the Leviticus 18, for instance. He and he alone is meant to uncover her nakedness and enter into a deep oneness, not only of flesh, but of soul and spirit also. And the woman is meant to be discerning, to give herself only to the one man who lays down his life for her. She is to warmly receive him and him alone with single-hearted faithfulness. But what happens with porn? Porn. The man who clicks on pornography does not go out from himself. He turns in on himself. He pursues nothing but his own desires. He woos no one but himself. He is not the active servant. He is the passive recipient. He doesn't uncover her nakedness. She indiscriminately uncovers herself. He doesn't engage her mind or heart, but merely consumes her flesh. This image calls forth nothing from the man except his own credit card details. And the habituation of this selfishness will only shut him down further. It turns men into children. There is nothing adult about adult entertainment. It is infantilizing. You know, porn is not virtual sex. It's anti-sex. It's anti-sex. It's anti-God. It's anti-life. Lust is anti-life. So Jesus gets serious, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus wants us to see the problem and to take it seriously. We don't want to. We we don't want to look at the problem and we don't want to address it. We don't want to take the lid off and have a look in. And, and we don't want to mess around with things. We don't want to take meaningful action about things. You know, we have a, a whole Me Too crisis we have 80 people making accusations against Harvey Weinstein and then hundreds of thousands, millions even of posts are then uh, put out into the world under the MeToo hashtag. People talking about their experiences of sexual abuse. And the only response we seem to have to that is to have a debate about consent. Just this, this tiny, the, 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 this one issue, it is a vital issue. Consent is absolutely vital. It's non-negotiable but it is only one aspect. It is only one aspect of our sex lives, but it's the only thing that we, the, that we want to talk about. We leave everything else unaddressed in terms of sex in the world. It's, it's like we are tap dancing through a minefield in clown shoes, and Harvey Weinstein goes off, and this sexual abuse thing goes off, and there's sex trafficking over here, and there's a whole pornographied society over here. Bombs are going off. We're, We're we're tap dancing through a minefield in clown shoes and on the 300th step into the minefield the the Harvey Weinstein thing has gone off, or the Me Too thing has gone off, And, and at that stage we say to ourselves, ah, the 300th step, that was the false step. We need to go only 299 steps into the minefield. We need to go maybe 298 steps, or if you're really prudish, let's only go 297 steps into the minefield. And Jesus says, forget about the minefield. Do an about face. Leave off the minefield. Take drastic action. Turn your face from this whole way of thinking about sex. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus is definitely saying take drastic action. And you're thinking to yourself, does he literally mean maim yourself? Does he literally mean maim yourself? Well, no, as, as we'll see, he doesn't mean literally maim yourself, but he is urging us to get serious, to take drastic action. Often I've talked to people struggling in the area of uh, lust and adultery, and, and they just, they confess to the problem, but then they don't take the issue seriously at all. They, they remind me of, uh, there's an episode of The Simpsons where, uh, we meet Ned Flanders' parents, and apparently Ned Flanders' parents were these uh, hippie beatnik poet types who are just groovy and would never discipline their son. And, and little Ned in the episode is just running riots. And the kids come to this psychiatrist and they say, Doc, you've got to help us. We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. And every time I, I, I talk to people who confess to the problem of pornography but then don't do anything about it, I, I think about that line. It comes to me every time. Doc, you've got to help me. I've tried nothing and I'm all out of ideas. And, and Jesus says, no, there are actions you can take. There really are actions you can take. And no, you're not meant to chop your hand off, but here, here, are, some, here are some actions that you could take that stop short of maiming yourself. Action number one, tell people, admit to the problem. And don't just admit the problem to the friend who you know will say, yeah, yeah, I struggle too. Don't we all struggle and let's just struggle, right? Admit it to a friend who will take it seriously, who will be with you, who will love you through it and say, we need to sort this out. Tell people, admit to the problem, get help. Here's another action you can take, sign up to filters on your computer and phone and tablets. There is technology that can help you out. There is accountability software that can help you out. If it's a real problem, why don't you get a dumb phone and not a smartphone? Why don't you get one of those bricks, you know, that doesn't do anything. You know, you can play that snake game on it, but nothing else, right? Won't get you onto the internet. And you think that's pretty drastic. That would, that's that's a drastic thing to take. It's it's not chopping your hand off though, is it, right? You could downgrade your mobile phone, couldn't you, to a dumb phone and not a smartphone? If you fall into temptation at certain times or days, then change your pattern. If food or alcohol is associated with the patterns that you fall into, change that. Are you taking care of yourself physically? Get enough exercise. It's all connected. Do you need to rearrange your house? Maybe you need to take your computer out of your bedroom or whatever it is. Maybe you need to change your job. Maybe you need to change your routine. Maybe you need to enter into community. Community is huge. You see, see, lust and sexual sin cuts you off from community and you need to stand against that. What are the steps that you can take to get into community, to get out of yourself and to to be with others who are good for you, and and then what other steps do you need to take to get away from people who are bad for you? Ending certain friendships that are very dangerous or unhelpful in this area. Sometimes you need to move house. Sometimes you need to move cities. And you say, I can't, I can't can't uproot my life and do X, Y, and Z just to deal with this little issue. And you're like, well, it's, it's better than cutting your hand off, right? Take drastic steps. Today, why don't you just tell someone? If if you feel like this sermon is for you, why don't you just tell someone? Why don't you admit to the problem? As many as 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women admit to being addicted to porn, depending on who you ask. that's, That's a lot of people, which means there can be a lot of conversations, even after the service today, even after your meeting today. There could be a lot of conversations going on as, as we face up to the problem. But then let me just finish with this. What will actually solve the problem? You know, is the problem my right hand or my right eye? No, because Jesus has told us where the problem lies. Verse 27, it's the desires of the heart. And you can't cut out your own heart, right? Right? You can't just keep a lid on your desires either. It doesn't work. So, so what do you do with them? Well, you admit to them. You let the law go to work on you, exposing you and showing you your needs. But you know that the law doesn't change you. The law just describes the good life of Jesus. It describes the good life of Jesus. It cannot create the good life of Jesus. The law exposes. The law helps us to be honest. But now, what what is it that will actually change us? Jesus will actually change us. Let me tell you a story from the Old Testament. Hosea, Hosea the prophet, was tasked by God with this fearful job of portraying to the world what the Lord is like with his people. The Lord says to Hosea, take to yourself an adulterous wife. So he marries this woman, Goma, who is adulterous. She always has been, but he marries her. And then even after they're married, she goes off and runs away to the, to the brothel to be a prostitute. And God comes back to Hosea and he says, I want you to keep going. I want you to keep reflecting my love for an adulterous people. Go to the brothel and bring her back. And, This sense of a conversation between Hosea and and, and the Lord. And And it's like Hosea kind of asks, Well, but what if they won't let her go? Then he says, Pay the price for her. Pay whatever price people pay for her and bring her home. And can you just imagine Hosea going to that brothel door and knocking on it and saying, I'm here for Goma. I want her home. I'll pay whatever it takes. Can you imagine that? That's God. That is what God does because we are the adulterous people. We look for love in all the wrong places. We misuse our sex lives in all sorts of ways. And Jesus is the God who comes after us. Jesus is the God who bangs on the brothel door and he's looking for us. You know, G.K. Chesterton or whoever it is, he said, every man who's banging on the brothel door is looking for God. Well, here is a shock. God is banging on the brothel door and he's looking for us. And he's paid the price for us. He paid the price on that cross and he wants us home. There is forgiveness for every sin. There is forgiveness for every sexual sin. Nothing is unforgivable and no pattern is unbreakable because we have a love that is unlimited. We have a God who has shown up in the midst of our sexual sin and He says, I've paid the price. Come out of it. Come home. Come home to my love and find that need, that desire, that craving for intimacy and connection. Find that in Christ. Find it there. So come home to that love of Jesus and and say, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. There is a love that is pure, that is passionate, that is satisfying, that is solid, that endures. Everyone knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. But be wowed and wooed by this. There's a God who bangs on the door of the brothel where you have been trading. And he's looking for you. He knows all you've done and still he wants you. He's paid the price. And he's calling you home to his true love.